You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's now open our Bibles to the readings this afternoon. Two readings from the Old Testament. First of all, Genesis 17 and then Deuteronomy 31 to 10. And then we're also going to read a short portion from the last part of the Belgic Confession, Article 34. Genesis 17 at verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Then God said, Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of twelve rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. When he had finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. On that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household 
or bought with his money every male in his household and circumcised them as God told him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised and his son Ishmael was 13. Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that same day. And every male in Abraham's household, including those born in his household or bought from a foreigner, was circumcised with him. Now we go to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 to 10. The book of Deuteronomy, as you may remember, is actually a sermon. A sermon from Moses to the people of Israel before they're about to enter into the promised land. So as we look at Deuteronomy 30, we remember that these words are being spoken by Moses to the people of Israel. When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come upon you, and you take them to heart wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations, and when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and with all your soul according to everything I command you today, And the Lord God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. Even if you have been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your fathers and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants, so that you may love Him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. The Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies who hate and persecute you. You will again obey the Lord and follow all His commands I am giving you today. And the Lord your God will make you most prosperous in all the work of your hands and in the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock and the crops of your land. The Lord will again delight in you and make you prosperous, just as He delighted in your fathers. If you obey the Lord your God and keep His commands and decrees that are written in this book of the law, and turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Let's also go to the Belgic Confession in the Book of Praise, Article 34, and we're going to read the last paragraph of that article. We read the first three paragraphs last week, and now we'll... Conclude with the last one. We believe, therefore, that anyone who aspires to eternal life ought to be baptized only once. Baptism should never be repeated, for we cannot be born twice. Moreover, baptism benefits us not only when the water is on us and when we receive it, but throughout our whole life. For that reason, we reject the error of the Anabaptists who are not content with a single baptism received only once, and who also condemn the baptism of the little children of believers. We believe that these children ought to be baptized and sealed with the sign of the covenant, as infants were circumcised in Israel on the basis of the same promises which are now made to our children. Indeed, Christ shed His blood to wash the children of believers just as much as He shed it for adults. Therefore, they ought to receive the sign and sacrament of what Christ has done for them, as the Lord commanded in the law that a lamb was to be offered shortly after children were born. This was a sacrament of the passion and death of Jesus Christ. Because baptism has the same meaning for our children as circumcision had for the people of Israel, Paul calls baptism 
the circumcision of Christ. Colossians 2, verse 11. This afternoon we are considering the truth of God's Word as it's been summarized and confessed by the church in Lord's Day 27 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Does this outward washing with water itself wash away sins? No. Only the blood of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit cleanse us from all sins. Why then does the Holy Spirit call baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins? God speaks in this way for a good reason. He wants to teach us that the blood and Spirit of Christ remove our sins just as water takes away dirt from the body. But, even more important, He wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign that we are as truly cleansed from our sins spiritually as we are bodily washed with water. Should infants, too, be baptized? Yes. Infants, as well as adults, belong to God's covenant and congregation. Through Christ's blood, the redemption from sin and the Holy Spirit, who works faith, are promised to them no less than to adults. Therefore, by baptism, as sign of the covenant, they must be grafted into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the old covenant by circumcision, in place of which baptism was instituted in the new covenant. Beloved congregation of Jesus Christ, this afternoon we're continuing to consider the teachings of the Bible regarding holy baptism. And as we begin to do that, I want to draw your attention to the front of the church, to the baptism font that sits on the table, this table right here. The construction of that baptism font, that wooden baptism font, holds a secret. It never used to be a secret, and it's not supposed to be a secret, but the passage of time has made it that way. If you look at that baptism font, look at its shape. It's shaped as an octagon. It has eight sides. Now, maybe you're thinking that this is just an artistic design, or that it, it just makes it look nice, or, or something like that. But if you're thinking that, brothers and sisters, you're wrong. If you ever happen to be in Europe and visit some of the old, old churches there, you'll see a pattern. In most of the oldest church buildings, the baptism font was located in a separate room at the back of the church. And that room was called a baptistry. And the baptistry also typically had eight sides, as did the baptism font itself. And so there is a long Christian tradition of building baptism fonts with eight sides. But what's the significance of the number eight in connection with baptism? Well, first of all, there are a number of them. First of all, 1 Peter 3 connects baptism and the great flood in the days of Noah. Peter says that eight people were saved through water, and this points to baptism. Second, baptism is associated with the resurrection of Christ in Romans 6. Jesus Christ rose on, you're thinking the third day, but 
You could also say the eighth day. Seven days plus one. Finally, in Colossians 2, the Holy Spirit connects baptism with circumcision. And what does circumcision have to do with the number eight? Well, Israelite boys were to be circumcised on which day? The eighth day. And all that is why the baptism font, also this baptism font here at the front of our church, has eight sides. It reminds us, this tradition of building baptism fonts that way, reminds us of some of the rich scriptural truths regarding holy baptism. And this afternoon we're going to consider some of those truths as we look at Lord's Day 27. And we're going to see that baptism signs and seals God's promises for us and our children. We'll consider two things. First of all, what God does in baptism. And second of all, who should be baptized and why. A baptism, as we looked at last week, we heard that baptism is simply an outward washing with water. Now, in the history of the church, there have been those who have argued that this washing itself washed away sins. And here we can think especially of the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church has long taught that baptism actually washes away sins. And just as we have the Heidelberg Catechism, so also the Roman Catholic Church has its own catechism. It's called the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And regarding baptism, the Catechism of the Catholic Church says, and I quote, By baptism, all sins are forgiven, original sin and all personal sins, as well as all punishment for sin. By baptism, all sins are forgiven. And that view is what's in the background of question 72 in the Heidelberg Catechism. We confess that it's only the blood of Christ and the Holy Spirit that cleanse us from all sins. Baptism itself doesn't actually wash away our sins. It's simply an outward thing, an outward washing with water. Because it's only outward, there's a need for an inward washing, a washing with Christ's blood and His Spirit. However, a Roman Catholic would hear that and then respond and say, well, you believe what the Bible says. What, what about Titus 3, verse 5? Titus 3, verse 5 says that God saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. The Catechism of the Catholic Church says that the Bible speaks this way, referring to Titus 3, verse 5, because baptism signifies and actually brings about the birth of water and the Spirit without which no one can enter the kingdom of God. According to the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, baptism is not merely a sign and seal. Rather, it actually accomplishes the washing away of sins. And they say that Titus 3 verse 5 supports them on this. So what do we do with that? If baptism is really an outward washing that points to the washing believers receive internally, with the blood and spirit of Christ, why does Titus 3 verse 5 speak that way? Well, you know what? The answer begins with the fact that Titus 3 verse 5 doesn't actually mention baptism as such. It mentions what baptism signs and seals and alludes to baptism by the mention of washing. 
So we have to go back to the nature of a sacrament. A sacrament is not magic. Rather, a sacrament is, as we heard last time, a visible preaching of the gospel. We can see water taking away dirt from the body. Get dirty, take a shower, and that's what happens, isn't it? Baptism is a kind of washing, and just as water takes away dirt from the body in the shower, so also the blood and Spirit of Christ take away our sins. The physical points us to the spiritual. The external washing points us to the internal washing. More importantly, there's the matter of assurance. Baptism is a pledge from God. A pledge, a guarantee from God that all who believe in Jesus Christ are truly cleansed from their sins. It's just as real and just as certain as the water that you can see and the water that you can touch. You know, sure, when when, when the baptism is taking place, only the minister really touches the water plus the, the baby perhaps is being baptized. Maybe some might drip on, on, on the father or the mother, but you, you could come up to the front of the, the church after the worship service and you could lift that lid of that font. You could see the water in there. You could touch it if you wanted to. It's real. And so truly real and certain is the washing away of your sins. And we're reminded of all that whenever we witness a baptism. You see, loved ones, it's... It's not only the parents and the child who are participating whenever a baptism is administered. In fact, all of us, the whole congregation, we are together participants. We're all being reminded and assured that as surely as the water being sprinkled is real, so truly and really have we, the congregation of believers, we have been cleansed from our sins spiritually. Baptism is a divine pledge, a guarantee. It's also a sign. And of course, there's a difference between a sign and the thing being signified. If we were to head over to the freeway and find a a big green sign that says Vancouver, 35 kilometers, no one in their right mind would go up to that sign and say, here, this this is Vancouver. Rather, the sign points to Vancouver. Tells you how far it is to go to Vancouver. The big green object is the sign. Vancouver is the thing being signified. The same is true with baptism. Baptism is the sign. The washing with Christ's blood and spirit is the thing being signified. In baptism... God wants to assure us by pointing us to the reality of what Christ has done for us. God is signing and sealing His promises to believers, to us. And that brings us to the next question, and that involves who should be baptized and why. Naturally, if God is signing and sealing His promises to believers in baptism we would expect that believers should be baptized. All Christians, indeed, should be baptized. And that's not a controversial position in the Christian faith. That's a clear teaching of Scripture. Everyone agrees with that. And mostly everyone will also agree 
That baptism is tied to the covenant of grace. Baptists like John Piper agree that like circumcision was the initiation rite of the old covenant, baptism is the initiation rite of the new covenant. They agree with that. Even if they won't call it a sacrament, they'll agree that baptism is connected with the covenant. That's not the issue. The issue is, who belongs to the covenant? Who belongs to the covenant of grace in the New Testament era? They agree that only those who belong to the covenant should receive baptism. So who belongs? Is it believers only, as our Baptist friends say? Or is it believers and their children? One of our readings was from Genesis 17. In that passage, God institutes circumcision as a sign and seal of the covenant of grace in the Old Testament. The covenant established there is not only with Abraham, but also with his descendants. Circumcision was to be the sign of that covenant. And what is clear is that the children were included. And again, that's that, that, that point is not in dispute. Everybody agrees with that. The covenant with, with Abraham was not only with believers, but with believers and their children. And the New Testament looks back on this and says that this was the old covenant. Or you could say the old covenant administration, to be more accurate. Not only that, but Hebrews 7.22 and Hebrews 8 verse 6 tell us that the new covenant administration, the administration of the covenant after Jesus has come, is better. The old was good, says the writer to the Hebrews, but the new is better. Now keeping that in mind, we can ask our Baptist friends to explain to us how excluding the children of believers in the new covenant makes the new covenant better. How does that fit with it being better? Is it really an improvement to exclude the children of believers? As it is, there are many indications in the New Testament that the Lord Jesus and the apostles, they regarded children as continuing to belong to the covenant of grace. For one thing, they're never excluded. Some time ago, as we were Going through Mark, we came to the passage where Jesus declared all foods to be clean, thus setting aside the Old Testament dietary laws. On that basis, if the Baptists are right, we might expect Jesus to declare that children are now also excluded from the covenant of grace. But there's a precedent for, for doing something similar to that. But he doesn't do that. Never. And neither do the apostles. In Acts 2.39, the apostle Peter says that the promise is not only for those who believe, but also for their children. In 1 Corinthians 7.14, the apostle Paul says that the child of even one Christian is holy. There's something different about that child. Just as in the Old Testament. 
The holiness of God's people in the Old Testament was directly connected to their covenant status. To be holy is to be a part of the covenant. And so also 1 Corinthians 7.14 supports the assertion that the children of believers are members of the covenant. And if they're members of the covenant, they ought to receive the sign and seal of the covenant, the covenant of grace, in baptism. But hold on, our Baptist friends may say. Hold on, because that doesn't account for the differences they say, between the old covenant people of God and the new covenant people of God. For instance, John Piper, going back to another very well-known Baptist author, John Piper argues that the old covenant people of God were a physical people, a nation, that they were a political entity. However, he says the new covenant people of God are different. They are a spiritual people. Entry into the Old Covenant was by physical birth. But entry into the New Covenant is by spiritual birth. And to support this, John Piper appeals to Hebrews 8, which speaks about the New Covenant and quotes from Jeremiah 31. In the New Covenant, says Piper, everyone will know the Lord. In the New Covenant, the people of God are a body of believers. According to John Piper, only believers belong to the New Covenant, and so only believers should be baptized. And I have to say, loved ones, at first glance, that sounds like a persuasive case. It sounds biblical, doesn't it? Look at what we read from Deuteronomy 30. In that passage, Moses speaks about God circumcising the hearts of the people of Israel. And that's a manner of expression, circumcising the heart. We, We actually find that expression not only in Deuteronomy 30, we find it in many places throughout the Old Testament. It wasn't enough for the people of Israel to be physically circumcised, for the covenant of God to be a vital and living reality there also had to be a circumcision of the heart or of the ears as it's, as it's put in some places. In fact, Piper is quite wrong when he says that the Old Covenant was purely physical and had nothing to do really with one's spiritual state. You can't say that the Old Covenant was physical and the New is spiritual. The Bible doesn't support that claim. And that's reinforced when we go to the New Testament. We see the way Paul uses the, the same language as Deuteronomy 30 in Romans 2, 28-29. Paul says, A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is a circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. That's Romans 2, 28-29. And you know, it's also worth noting that the, the promise of Deuteronomy 30 about circumcision of the heart is applied to entire families. It's not just for individuals. 
There's no hint there that the Old Covenant was about the physical and the external. There were promises there too for what happens internally by the working of the Holy Spirit. Both circumcision and baptism point to a deeper spiritual transformation. As the Belgic Confession puts it in Article 34, baptism has the same meaning for our children as circumcision had for the people of Israel. And that's why Paul calls baptism the circumcision of Christ in Colossians 2.11. The Christian church has always recognized that connection. And here again, if you want proof, consider that ancient tradition of an eight-sided baptism font. Furthermore, we should also note that, that Jeremiah 31 which is what Hebrews 8 quotes and which Piper is arguing from. Jeremiah 31 speaks of a covenant that God makes with the house of Israel. And that too, house of Israel, that too is language that speaks of the family. In the Old Testament, a house points to family relationships. God made His covenant in the Old Testament with families, with believers and their children. And so also Hebrews 8, drawing on Jeremiah 31, gives us no reason to believe that things are different in the New Testament era. Also today, God makes His covenant with households. Looking back to the time of the apostles, first century Jewish parents converting to Christianity they would have been flabbergasted at the suggestion that their children were now outside of the covenant of grace. Imagine saying to them, being one of the apostles and saying to them, listen, ten years ago they were included. But now that you've become a Christian, now that you believe in Jesus Christ, sorry, your children are out now. As someone once said, if the apostles had ever made such a statement, the response of Jewish parents would have been, I thought you were bringing us good news. But brothers and sisters, the apostles did bring good news. And the good news included the fact that children are included in the covenant that God makes with believers. A couple minutes ago, I mentioned Acts 2.39. Peter said that the promise is also for your children. Children were always included in the Old Testament and they're still included in the New Testament. And so in Ephesians 6, Paul is writing to the children of believers, to children in the church at Ephesus. And he doesn't address them as, as somebody once said, vipers and diapers. He addresses them as members of the covenant of grace. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. He reminds them of the fifth commandment. Remember, the fifth commandment is one of the ten words of God's covenant. And in so doing, he draws a line between children of the covenant in the Old Testament and children of the covenant in the New Testament. They they have exactly the same responsibilities. They have exactly the same privileges. And they're also 
to be regarded in the same way by their parents. They are to be raised as Christians. They are to be raised as disciples of Christ. In Ephesians 6, verse 4, Paul says, Fathers, do not provoke your children, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In other words, treat them for who they really are. They are the Lord's children. And they should be raised as the Lord's children. They belong to His covenant, and they should be raised as those who belong to His covenant. And for our purposes, if they belong to His covenant, they should receive the sign and seal of the covenant in baptism. Last week when we began considering baptism, we noted that for many of us, our first time coming to church was at our baptism as infants. We didn't walk into the church by ourselves. Somebody carried us. We were carried into the church, carried to the front of the church, to the baptism font. And then we didn't baptize ourselves. No, we had somebody do it to us. Baptism was administered to us. And that's a powerful picture, brothers and sisters, of God's sovereignty in our salvation. Every time a baby is baptized, and we we witness it, we see it, we're reminded that we are that helpless little child. We are totally dependent on God's grace in Jesus Christ. Not only baptism, but also the baptism of infants is a vivid preaching of the gospel, the gospel of grace. And that's just one more reason why neglecting to baptize the children of believers is an impoverishment, not an improvement. Closely connected with that is what the Belgic Confession says about being baptized more than once. In the days the Belgic Confession was written, some of the Anabaptists were baptizing and being baptized multiple times. And this was mostly because they regarded baptism as a confession of faith. And on that logic, what could be wrong with wanting to confess your faith as many times as you possibly can? And as a missionary, I encountered this same point of view. All of the people I was involved with as a missionary had been baptized as babies. But many of them had also been baptized as adults. And sometimes, numerous times. But what if baptism is not about our commitment to God? What if baptism is instead about God communicating something to us? What if baptism is God signing and sealing His promises to us? Then it makes no sense to be baptized repeatedly. Even twice makes no sense. Further, baptism is a sacramental portrayal of our death and rebirth in Jesus Christ. And that rebirth can only happen once. You cannot be spiritually born twice. Therefore, you cannot be baptized twice. And the confession also reminds us that baptism is not something that only benefits us when we receive it, which for most of us doesn't do a whole lot of good because we don't actually remember it. But baptism benefits us throughout our lives. 
We can constantly look back to our baptism as infants. Even if we can't remember it, we can look back to it, be reminded every time we see a baptism, be reminded and assured that God's gospel promises stand fast. They stand firm. God doesn't go back on His Word. His Word is dependable, rock solid. Being rebaptized or being baptized multiple times draws that into question. And I know that there are a lot more issues surrounding baptism, issues that I haven't addressed. So let me recommend a couple of books. These are books that have been recommended in the past in the liturgy sheet, but let me bring them to your attention one more time. The first is a short defense of infant baptism. It's called Jesus Loves the Little Children by Daniel Hyde. It's an excellent brief look at why we baptize our children. Reverend Hyde also looks at the history of infant baptism, and he discusses the differences between dedication and baptism, something that we don't have time to look at here this afternoon. So that first book is called Jesus Loves the Little Children by Daniel Hyde. The other book is quite a bit thicker, a bit longer, and deals not just with baptism, uh, infant baptism, but baptism in general. And it's called The Promise of Baptism, and the author is James Brownson. Both of these books will answer a lot of the questions that I haven't dealt with this week and last. So if you still have some outstanding questions and you need some help, you need some answers on this issue, let me recommend to you those two books. Jesus Loves the Little Children by Daniel Hyde and The Promise of Baptism by James Brownson. And if you miss those and you still want to get them, you can talk to me afterwards or you can send me an email message, whatever it takes. I'd be happy to point you in the right direction. So loved ones, baptism is an important subject. And the reason why it's important is because it's connected to the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And so as we continue to witness baptisms, and as we participate in the baptisms of our children and others, we can be sure that God will use this means of grace to strengthen our faith in our Savior. Let's now pray and ask Him for His help in that. Heavenly Father, God of promise, we thank You for the covenant that You have made with us and with our children. We acknowledge Your grace and we praise You for it. Neither we nor our children deserve this great blessing of being called Your people. We don't deserve to have You as our God. Father, we thank You for Your Word which proclaims this truth to us and for the sacraments which confirm it. We especially thank you this afternoon for what you communicate to us and to our children in baptism. We pray that through our baptisms you would continue to strengthen our faith in the Savior. We ask that through baptism you would continue to impress us with the wonder of grace, with your great love, with your saving power. Please hear us in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.